Heavenly Father, uh, first of all, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful building you've provided us with, a place where we can come and study your word and learn more about you. Lord, thank you also for brothers and sisters in Christ who want to be here uh, to study your word further. Lord, my prayer request this morning, please bless this lesson. Help me to make the message that Moses taught clear and understandable. And Lord, open our hearts and our minds that we would understand what he wrote, but not only that we would understand it, Lord, and I pray this for not just this lesson on Deuteronomy, but for all of these overviews uh, that we're teaching on the Old Testament, that we would not only understand them, but that we'd also be able to teach these books to other people who are unfamiliar with them and who have questions about them. So, Lord, bless this lesson. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. It is now week seven in our survey through the books of the Old Testament, and today we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. And I'm guessing that most of you, if you were asked, would not pick Deuteronomy as your favorite book of the Old Testament. I'm just guessing that. And I'm guessing you're probably most of you, with the exception of Al Negan and J.D. and maybe Michael Dietzel, I don't know, would probably not say that you're extremely familiar with its contents and could teach through the major themes of Deuteronomy. I would guess that most Christians understand that this is the fifth and final book in those five books of history, the Pentateuch, that were all written by Moses. And I would imagine a lot of you remember that when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he spoke three passages, quoting directly from the book of Deuteronomy, and Satan was vanquished. But, do you know what the main purpose of this book is? If I had to ask you what are the key themes, what would you say? How would you teach this book to other people? Why has God sovereignly seen to it that this book of Deuteronomy has been preserved so long and kept in our Bible? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. As far as background information, Deuteronomy records the very last words of Moses. Like Kerry told us last week as he taught through Numbers, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy were written in his last uh, year of his life. In fact, uh, these words, these last words of Moses were recorded within the last two years of his death. So that's just over 3,400 years ago. In other words, somewhere around 1405 before Christ. Chronologically, nearly everything that happens in this book happens within the first 33 chapters. It's 34 chapters long, and it only takes about one month. Um, Moses dies, and then apparently someone else pens the, the words of the last book, chapter 34, which details the morning of the death of Moses that went on for about 30 days before Israel heads across the Jordan River for the Promised Land. So let's get to the content. A lot of Bible scholars think that this book of Deuteronomy was actually four different sermons that Moses taught through. And we don't know that for sure. If he did, I, or I thought, man, if he taught through this in one setting, it's... Uh, 28,000 words in our modern Bibles, and I know I speak about 116 to 117 words per minute. Most of my lessons that I write are about 5,000 words. It takes just under 45 minutes. At that pace, it would take about four and a half hours for me to read the whole book to you. So I don't know if Moses did this seminar style with lunch breaks, dinner breaks, or if he did it over a period of a few days. We don't know, 
And it's not important, obviously, because that's not in the text. But it does serve these four divisions as really a good outline for the the basic content, because Moses really emphasizes some different things. So this is how we're going to break it down. And you can see the chapters here and how they're broken down. We're going to finish the last 10% of this lesson talking about um, the Mosaic Covenant to, to make sense of it today as we as Christians living under the New Covenant uh, make sense of why God gave this teaching of the law to Israel. So let's dive right into this and start with section number one, which kind of recaps the first three chapters. Moses is going to recap Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab. And that's where we start as we open the pages of Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die, and he knows this. And a new generation is about to enter the promised land. But first, they need to be taught the Mosaic Covenant, which their mothers and fathers received at Mount Sinai. You'll remember when we went through Exodus, that's what they received. The giving of the law was within the Mosaic Covenant. And that was done before this generation that's standing here at, at uh, the plains of Moab are about to hear. We've talked about the Mosaic Covenant a bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about it today because that's what Moses is teaching in the book of Deuteronomy. We also need to talk about it because, like I said, we need to understand how it fits with the new covenant that we live under today. So everything that happens in Deuteronomy, again, it takes place in the plains of Moab, which is near Mount Nebo. This is just east of Jericho, as you can see on the map here. That's only about 12 miles uh, east of Jericho, which lies in the Promised Land across the Jordan River. Israel has now been commanded by God to move into this land that he'd promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so long ago. So as we begin Deuteronomy, it's been just short of 40 years since the command uh, to leave uh, Egypt, uh, since the Exodus. Last week, Kerry taught us, again, we, we went through numbers, he taught us that a, a t- key theme of Deuteronomy was man's faithlessness to God in contrast to God's faithfulness to his word. Harry also taught us how fiercely jealous God was for his holiness and for his glory as he punished a disobedient generation of Israel because of their severe lack of faith as they refused to go into this promised land. They were afraid of its inhabitants. And I find it interesting that Moses says there were giants there. and a lot of people think they were probably seven-footers, but Moses takes the time to record the size of this one king, King Og's bed. It was 13 feet long by 6 feet wide. I don't know why he would take note of that, except they must have been really big, and so they were really scared. But regardless, they were afraid. Can you imagine? The God of Israel has been leading them, and they're saying, we can't do this. So they're punished. And here in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy, the disobedient generation that brought upon Israel the punishment of having to turn away from the promised land and wander for, it's actually about 38 years in the wilderness, they are now dead and gone. So Moses is addressing now a new generation of Israelites, and God is commanding them to move into the promised land. But before they go, Moses has to prepare them. Because this generation was too young to remember or understand all the things that had happened when their fathers and mothers were camped 
in what the Bible calls Horeb or Mount Sinai when they got the commandments. And they weren't, probably most of them were not even born when this generation left Sinai and began the journey up towards the promised land. And so Moses begins by recapping basically everything that Carrie taught us last week, everything that happened since God told them to leave Sinai or Horeb. And he's reminding them that their lack of faith is why that disobedient generation, their mothers and fathers, would never see the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. At the end of chapter 3, Moses says that even he isn't allowed into the promised land because God was angry with him because of them. And so nearly this entire section, these, these first three chapters, are dedicated to Moses making it perfectly crystal clear to these people standing before him that this nation has a history of being a disobedient people who'd failed to fear and obey the Lord. And it's really interesting as you look at what he's saying to them, it's almost like he's saying collectively to them and to other future generations, remember, this is going to be taught to all of Israel for centuries. And even though that generation is dead and gone, it's like he's still castigating all of them. You can imagine the future generations reading it, remembering what he's teaching here. So let's move to the second major division where uh, chapters 4 through 26, this is for the bulk of the messages. Here Moses reviews and expands the law, the Mosaic Covenant, for this new generation. Again, they weren't there when their parents received it and were taught it. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in these 23 chapters because uh, this is where Moses begins to teach on the key themes that we need to understand and that they needed to understand before entering the Promised Land. These are really critical matters. These are going to greatly affect the future well-being of Israel. And again, not just the immediate future of this generation who's standing there listening, but the entire um, nation of Israel moving forward in the future. So in this section, Moses gives a really extended review of the Ten Commandments, the law. This is Israel's constitution, if you will. And he charges Israel repeatedly to keep it and to obey it. So this retelling of the law is actually where we get the name of the book, Deuteronomy. It comes from the the Septuagint, which was uh, brought forth in about two to three centuries before Christ. It's when they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. So the word was, um, see if I can get this right, deuterionomian. Deutero meaning second, uh, nomian law. So it kind of translates into second law or retelling of the law. It's more of a retelling. It's not a second law. They already had been given the law. It's just an explanation of um, the law given in the Mosaic Covenant. So let's look at a few scriptures from this section that teach the main point of emphasis, or the main points of emphasis, rather, that Moses is going to repeat throughout this book. Let's look first at, uh, if you've got your Bibles, flip to chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. This proclaims the key, what I think is the key overarching theme of this entire book. It says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes which I command you today. This is actually one of nine different verses in which Moses repeats these exact same words. Take care lest you forget. And then there's chapter 9, verse 7, which says, 
Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God with, to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Notice that this verse tells them to remember as well as to not forget. And there are also 12 more verses that command them to remember. Here's one from chapter 24, verse 18, if you want to flip there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So, if you're counting, that's 21 total times that Moses commands them not to forget, but to remember. And again, they were not to forget that the reason that thus far they've been unable to enter the promised land is because of their history, their national history of disobedience and their lack of faith in the Lord their God. So again, this is a very pertinent message to all future generations of Israel that would read these words later. They're also commanded, very, very importantly, to fear the Lord their God. Another key theme that Moses stresses throughout this book, 19 different times, Moses commands them to fear the Lord. If you want to flip back to chapter 5, Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. So right after Israel has expressed to God their desire to hear all that he has to tell them and to do all that he says, they express that to him. We want to hear what you have to say and we'll do everything that you say. This is how God responds. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. This shows us the heart of God for the people that he loves. He wants them to fear him so that it will go well for them. He doesn't command them to fear him to be mean. He's commanding them to fear him for their own benefit. And this isn't the hopeless, despairing fear of the unbelievers who don't know God. The fear that God desires is a reverent, awestruck fear that produces love and respect, a desire of the heart to obey an awesome God. That's the fear he's commanding them to have. It's the kind of fear that leads to worship and obedience for those who love him. Now, another key theme that is intrinsically tied to this command to fear the Lord, is the exhortation to keep and obey His commandments. This is repeated 38 times in Deuteronomy. And I want to read to you an example of a verse that ties these two themes together. Fear the Lord, keep and obey His commandments. If you want to flip to chapter 17, verse 19. Chapter 17, verse 19. It starts out by Moses saying, Any future king they have shall write himself a copy of these laws. Imagine that, writing down all the laws of Moses. Think how ingrained that would be in that king's head. Then he says in verse 19, And he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And Moses explains why they shouldn't just read these commandments, but also to keep and obey them. It's because blessings come from keeping and obeying God's law. 
Uh, go to chapter 28. Let's look at uh, the first two verses in chapter 28. And I know this is outside of this section that we're, that we're reviewing, but it's a really good key synopsis. Um, and, and these themes are not just repeated in this section that we're going through, but I pulled this one out of uh, chapter 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all these commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But again, as he taught, um, and that's a, a very big if, by the way. <laughs> again, as he taught their fathers and mothers, Moses explains within this covenant that disobedience will result in punishment. Skip to verse 15, chapter 28. Moses says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you look at the rest of chapter 28, just skim through chapter 28. It's a very long chapter. Um, 53 verses there pronounce scathingly, Horrible consequences they'll suffer if they disobey. It's really horrible to read, and it was meant, again, to strike fear into their hearts, godly fear into their hearts. Why? Because as we know from the book of Proverbs, 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it was absolutely essential to Israel's well-being that they would know and keep God's law. This was for their own benefit. And again, this was their constitution they were supposed to live by. So the priests, Levitical priests, functions as, functioned as teachers of the law. But even more important were the, the teachings of the parents. This was critical. Parents were to teach their children to fear the Lord and to keep his laws and to obey them. They were instructed, the parents were, to be very diligent in this task. And this is why the so many commands to keep the law. Parents were the key communication of God's law from generation to generation. It wasn't just the Levitical priests. So, to recap, the main purpose of this book is to remind Israel, take care lest you forget. This is the key overarching theme. The other intrinsically linked key themes, fear the Lord, obey and keep his commandments, and there will be blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. This was the Mosaic Covenant. God's chosen people were being commanded over and over again not to forget their history of disobedience, their history of their lack of faith in the Lord their God. They were not to forget the reason, again, that thus far they have been unable to enter that promised land that was promised to their forefathers. So they're commanded time and time again, fear the Lord your God, keep and obey His commandments. Why? It's because of their special relationship to God. He didn't make this covenant with any other nation. They were His chosen people. But there were many other important issues that Moses had to deal with. One of those issues that he dealt with was Israel's relationship to the Canaanites, the inhabitants of this promised land. He gave them two critical orders. You're probably very familiar with this. First, Israel was to completely destroy every single Canaanite living within the boundaries of that land. 
God tells them they are to destroy everything within the land that breathes, devoting them to complete destruction. Secondly, they're not to intermarry with the Canaanites during those several years of the campaign that it would take to conquer each city piece by piece. This was forbidden. It seems harsh to some that come to this, but it was forbidden because it would bring idolatry into the homes of Israel. And they would be uh, suffering for that in the future. Moses also gives them instruction on how they're to deal with nations outside of the promised land. Those, those nations that were pretty close in proximity and could potentially give them trouble. This is really interesting. They're supposed to, Israel is supposed to offer each of these towns just outside the boundaries of the promised land a peace treaty. If that city agrees, then they'll live and they'll serve Israel as forced labor. If they don't accept the peace treaty, well, they'll be wiped out. Their men will be killed, their women, their children, their flocks, and all their possessions, any wealth they have, will be taken as plunder. Moses also reveals something very important about the land itself, the physical land that they're about to take. Unlike Egypt, and J.D.'s been there, some of you have been uh, into the Promised Land. This land couldn't be irrigated because the Jordan River sits hundreds of feet uh, below sea level. And so it's impossible to run water from the Jordan River up to the croplands or even up to the grazing lands where the animals would be feeding. This land was totally dependent on rains. And God promised that if Israel obeyed him, he'd always bring rain for their crops and for their herds. But if they disobeyed, guess what? There would be no rain. And when there's no rain, as you can imagine what happens, ultimately the result is famine. So it's really interesting that um, the land, the health of the land, was really a spiritual issue. So these droughts, these famines, they were designed to be clear, visible indicators of God's pleasure or displeasure with them. And this is something you might be aware of. I mention it because as you read through the Old Testament, you can pay attention uh, as to what happens in the land throughout the Old Testament as Israel disobeys. And you can see a few examples that I mentioned here. These are just a handful. Another uh, related subject that Moses addresses in this section is the absolute necessity of removing all idolatry from Canaan. This is an extremely stern warning that Moses gives them, and it's not the first time he's given it. Remember God's first commandment. We all should know this. You shall have no other gods before me. His second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And idolatry, believe it or not, I thought I'd mention this for just a quick minute, it's still a big deal in the New Testament. Did you know that? I had to look this up because it really intrigued me, this emphasis in the Old Testament. You notice in the New Testament the word idol or idols or idolatry. It's mentioned a total of 26 times. Did you know that? Now, except for maybe one or two verses in the New Testament, Paul says in Colossians 3, um, put to death what's earthly in you, and he names a few sins, and covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians 10, with maybe the exception of those two verses, every other time, the other 24 times that idols or idolatry uh, or an idol are mentioned in the New Testament, every single time 
It's talking literally about idols that are made by human hands. Or it's talking about idols to, which, to whom food has been sacrificed. Or in the case of Galatians 5, idolatry is listed as a separate sin distinct from other sins. The point is this. The reason I'm bringing this out is God's commands for people to, his people to worship him alone and not to worship any carved image is just as serious now as it was in the days of Moses. This is still a very big deal. And that's why we don't pray to Mary or any of the saints or any other little statues. And Moses sure made sure they understood this. Moses also made sure they understood the great faithfulness of God who'd kept them safe over the past 40 years in this section. This is one of the things he emphasizes to them. He says, remember God fed us bread from heaven. We all know this. He brought water forth from a rock. And by the way, over nearly 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, a harsh, dry, rocky environment, as we all know, their clothes and their shoes hadn't worn out. And I don't think they have a footlocker there or um, you know, stores. So that's miraculous. He says, remember these things. All right, let's move on to our third section, the third major division. Um, chapters 27 through 30, here Moses reviews Israel's covenant relationship with God. And here's where... Once again, we get to talk a little bit further about the Mosaic Covenant. And as we've reiterated, this was a conditional covenant. It was based on Israel's obedience. And there were ramifications. As we've already discussed, God had promised them blessings for obedience, but curses for disobedience. We should all know this by now and be able to teach this. If you flip to chapter 27 now... um, Skim over the text from verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. Just kind of look for the content there. You can see that over half of, chap- half of chapter 27's contents are curses for disobedience. And again, as you uh, look through chapter 28, this is a really long chapter. Like I said, 68 verses. Over 80% of this chapter details the curses. So this is a major, major topic of this a third section that Moses is communicating to the people. And here again, he delivers a very simple message. And I want to show this to you from verse 16 of chapter 30. The message here, keep the words of this covenant that you may prosper in all you do. He says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules... Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And he makes clear, again, this covenant isn't just for the Israelites assembled here, this new generation, but also for the sojourners that had joined them. And, very importantly, he says, for those who are to come, future tense. But will they obey? It's a big question. And I highlight here the word if. That's a really big word, if, as we'll see in just a minute. And as we go through these Old Testament books, you'll see why he said if. All right, let's go to the fourth major division, chapters 31 through 34. Here we read of the final ministry of Moses, what scholars think may have been a fourth sermon. After Moses had taught through all of this critical information to a new generation, Again, he knew it was time for him to die. Joshua would now take over 
and lead the people. Moses had finished pretty much all of the work that God had for him. He'd written down all the words of the covenant. He'd taught them to the priests, and now he'd spoken them to the people. But he still had one more message for them. And I want you to get this, because I don't think a lot of people look at the book of Deuteronomy and see it being prophetic. But there's a reason that Moses was called a great prophet. Let's look at the last eight verses of chapter 29. If you want to flip there. Chapter 29. I'm sorry, I just realized that's actually outside of the the purvey of these chapters, but um, you'll see what we're talking about here. Moses tells them that in the future, the land will be barren where no plant will sprout. Why? Because they abandoned the covenant and went and served other gods and worshipped them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land. He's giving this to them before they've even taken possession of the land. So how can they be rooted out of it? He's talking about Israel's future apostasy, where they would play the harlot with other gods, resulting in their destruction and their dispersion at the hands of Assyria. Moses continues to prophesy about Israel through the first 10 verses of chapter 30. Look at that. I won't read through all of it, but it corresponds with something he wrote. Now I'm going to go back to chapter 4, verses 27, I'm sorry, 25 through 27. Listen to what he told them here. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly Destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And note that he says the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and that they'll be driven among the nations. Isn't that interesting? Remember that next month, I think, is when we get to Second uh, Kings. If you read chapter 17, it records what's going to happen to this nation. A little over six centuries later when God uses the king of Assyria to scatter Israel among the nations, exiling them from this land, leaving only the tribe of Judah. Why? Because they sinned against the Lord their God, feared other gods, and they abandoned the commandments. And so Moses may have been the first prophet to say this, but he wasn't the last. Ezekiel talked about Israel being scattered sheep In Ezekiel 34, he said through the prophet Ezekiel, verse 6, My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth. And then in verse 12, So I will seek out my sheep, this is future tense, and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries. He also said, I have cast them far off among the Gentiles. Amos said, I will sift the house of Israel from among the Gentiles. The psalmist said, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles. Hosea said, Israel is swallowed up, now they are among the Gentiles. And then Moses 
delivers the words of a song. This is recorded in chapter 32. It appears to be a prophecy of the future of Israel. God already knows, you see, whether they're going to be obedient or not. This shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Go to 32, chapter 32. Look at verses 21 and 22. They have made me jealous. This is chapter 32 again. They've made me jealous with what is no God. They've provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. I don't know what nation he's talking about here, but Hosea also used this phrase, no people. And so did Paul in describing the Gentiles. But yet, there's still this eschatological prophecy Moses gives Israel. Again, I'm going to go back to chapter 4 now. Verse 30. He says, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. This is still unfulfilled. Israel still hasn't returned to the Lord their God, but they will someday. Verse 31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So much of the Abrahamic covenant, we've talked about the Abrahamic covenant going all the way back to Genesis, is still unfulfilled today. They will return to the land someday, and he once again will be their God. And no, I don't think that Israel, becoming a nation in 1948, fulfills all of the Abrahamic covenant. I don't think they're all back yet, and he is still, the God of the Bible is still not their God. So moving forward, Moses then moves to give Israel a lengthy blessing. And he mentions each of the tribes, the sons of Jacob by name. And shortly after giving this blessing to the people, he climbs up to the top. He's 120 years old now. But the scripture says he was still clear of vision and in pretty good shape for a guy 120 because he climbs up to the top of Mount Nebo. And God says, you can look across and see the land of promise. Again, he's not going to build an inner And then he dies shortly afterwards. And then, obviously, another author picks up the pen And he wrote down the words of the final chapter, chapter 34, which says they mourned, Israel, mourned the death of Moses for 30 days. And here I want to read to you the closing words of the Pentateuch, written down by that second author. He gives tribute to Moses, this great prophet. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the mighty deeds, great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's how the book of Deuteronomy closes. And so now I want to move to our fifth and final part of our our, um, lesson this morning. How do we make sense of the Mosaic Covenant? This is something that's probably lingering in some of your minds And earlier I said we would talk more about this Mosaic Covenant because we need to understand how it fits in to the new covenant that we live by today. I want you to understand, this is not a sermon. I am teaching an overview of the book of Deuteronomy, okay? But this Mosaic Covenant requires some explanation as it pertains to the gospel. And I'm going to have to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ just a bit to give proper perspective on how this covenant 
given here so long ago in the book of Deuteronomy, fits with the Bible. You might be wondering if the Mosaic Covenant, with its emphasis on obedience to the law, is somehow in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, this covenant that God promised, in this covenant, God promised the people blessings through obedience to the law, punishment, curses for disobedience. So is this in contrast with what Christ taught during his earthly ministry? Is Moses giving a message here of a works-based salvation? Did God have a different means of salvation for the Israelites 3,400 years ago than he has always had and has now? The answer to these questions, as I hope most of you already know, is no. Even though it emphasizes obedience to the law, Moses What he's teaching here in the Mosaic Covenant is not in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is the same God today that he was when he gave the law to the Israelites. And and think about this, the individual 66 books of the Bible from beginning to end that make up the entire book of the Bible, they're all connected. They're all inspired by the same author. And it shouldn't surprise us that they're all in agreement. So let's talk about this obedience to the law so we can put a, a bow on this. What did Jesus teach about obedience to God's law? We look at his life on earth as a little child. Did he obey his parents? Yeah, Luke 5 says he did. As an adult, did he obey the law? Look at Matthew 5. He obeyed the law. Did he fulfill all righteousness? Yes. Matthew again says when he went to the cross, he fulfilled all righteousness. All his life... Jesus completely fulfilled his Father's will and was obedient to the law. In fact, Jesus said very famously in Matthew chapter 5, you should all know this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And in saying this, Jesus is clearly promoting the authority of the law of God. In the next verse of that passage, he commends those who teach the law accurately and who hold it in reverence. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he didn't do here. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. And notice what he did to, did do. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. And in doing this, he accomplished our eternal salvation. And so there are some that would argue that on the basis of this, since he didn't come to abolish the law, then the law is still in effect, still binding on the New Testament Christians. And that's not what I'm saying today. Paul is very clear when he writes, this is in Romans Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified in faith by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Huh. But didn't Moses say? So what does Paul mean by this? He explains it in Romans chapter 10. Again, I'm not sermonizing, I'm just explaining here. We have to understand this. Here's what Paul says in Romans 10. 
And he mentions, he talks about Moses here. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Wait, righteousness based on the law? That a person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then Paul then goes on to say that the faith that he's teaching them here is a faith-based righteousness. That's how he describes it here. And that God's word is in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, he goes on to explain, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the obedience that Moses is teaching Israel, it turns out, is a heart issue. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, going back to the words of Moses again, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what he means when he says the Lord is one, it means that there is no other God. He's alone as the only God, just so you know. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the greatest command, isn't it? When the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? This is exactly what he told them. This is the very center of the law. It's also why we have the book of James, by the way. Remember James said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James also said, faith, apart from works, is dead. So, to bring this to a conclusion, that's why we still read the book of Deuteronomy. So that we don't forget the message that God gave to Israel so long ago. It's not about an external obedience or conformity to the law. It's about having our hearts being oriented towards God. These key themes... Always remember, take care lest you forget, fear the Lord your God, fear his wrath, obey his word, keep and teach it to your children. These are all heart issues, it turns out. There is no such thing as a works-based righteousness. Never has been, never will be. And we as Christians who are living under this new covenant still benefit from remembering these things, don't we? And that's why I'm so grateful we have a church that lets us go through all of these things and talk about them. And with that, I have to bring our study of Deuteronomy to a close. But I will invite you to come back next week because our dear brother, Al Negan, Al, I've been thinking about you all week. He loves the words of Scripture. He loves the Old Testament. He's going to tell us what happens next as Israel crosses the Jordan River and begins to take the Promised Land. So come back next week to hear our dear brother, Al teach on Joshua, and then he'll teach on Judges the next week. And that's where we'll close. I'll invite you to come back in 15 minutes, and we'll worship this awesome God.